Welcome to the Calvary Chapel South Bay Sermon Podcast. We are a large, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Los Angeles, California, and we'd love to have you visit us for a service if you're in the L.A. area. Visit ccsouthbay.org to learn more about us and to find out service times. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at hello at ccsouthbay.org. Enjoy today's sermon, and we hope to see you at church soon. All right, Mark chapter 14, James chapter 1. Let's go to the Lord in prayer to prepare our hearts. Father, I do want to say thank you. Because your word is true and your word is honest. You made it very clear that we were going to go through trials and tribulations. You didn't hide it from us. You made it evident. And it's why we trust you, because you, you don't keep us from truth. You give us what we need to make it through trials. And I'm thankful for this word because this is not just a story of what you went through, as powerful as that is. You want us to learn from you and to be like you. So use this word in our life as we walk through our trials to be like you. In Jesus' name, all God's people said. Church, I got good news. And I got bad news. Now, I would ask which one you want first, but I'm just going to give you the good news. The good news is this. Good news is that we all can go to heaven if we've accepted Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord. Amen? That is great news. But I got bad news. Because if you receive the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior... And this comes straight from 2 Timothy. Listen to what he said. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Let the church say amen. Amen. Okay, there's about three of you. Because that's not a verse that you put on a plaque. Listen carefully. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Oh, (laughs) praise the Lord. Out of the mouth of babes, when the adults were silent, the children cried out. You know what my mom says? Taught me this growing up from the time I was young. If you're not being persecuted, you are no one for the enemy to worry about. See, the devil, the world, even your own flesh, doesn't want to see you progress in the Lord. There's a desire of the devil to tarnish our testimony and to weaken our witness. In some sense, in our Christian life, we will either be in trial or on trial as believers on this earth. In fact, I'm in a trial right now. His name is Maverick, he's my new puppy. I've renamed him a few days ago Legion because there are many demons within him. In fact, this morning, I, my wife came early to do the choir and I left my laptop on my bed. He jumped on the bed and decided to rewrite my entire sermon. He did the onesies and the twosies all over my laptop that when I got to my notes, they were gone. J's and K's and S's and A's and all kinds of notes were there that I didn't put there. And so I pressed undo, 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 undo about 300 times to get back to my original notes. And I looked at that little legion and I said, get thee behind me, Satan. I know trials. I know trials. And we're going to have trials. Because Jesus said, listen carefully. It's John 16, in this world, you will have tribulation, especially in our world, especially in our 21st century world that despises anything Christian or Jesus. Unfortunately, persecution even exists in the church. Do you remember what Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 1? He said that Christians wanted to add afflictions to his chains. 
But later in chapter 1, later in chapter 3, though he was in jail by unbelievers, persecuted by unbelievers and believers, he writes in Philippians chapter 3 that he wanted to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Paul basically is saying, I want to be in a relationship with Jesus no matter what it costs me, because one day I will rise again and experience the power of the resurrection, and it doesn't matter to me what I go through on earth. One day I'll be with God in heaven. Let the church say amen. Question is this. Listen carefully. Are you willing to be a witness in the midst of your trials just like the Apostle Paul? Can you make this statement of Philippians chapter 3? I'll read you what one author wrote about Christians who live in the closet. It's not great when those who are wanting to go to heaven but are not willing to witness here on earth. Church. If I want to lose weight, but I'm not willing to go through the trial of a diet, is it quite possible that I really don't want to lose the weight? And as we experience the trials of Jesus, and we see what he went through and experience how he behaved, this story is for us. Not just an experience of our redemption, but Jesus teaching us how to behave in the midst of our trials. It's Mark chapter 14. Would you take a look at verse 53 and 54? Mark 14, 53, and they led Jesus away to the high priest. And with him were assembled all the chief priests, the elders and the scribes. Another gospel tells us that it was in the living room of the high priest, not even where they should have been. But Peter followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. So there we know it's in the home of the high priest. And he sat with the servants and warmed himself at the fire. If you take a note, I call this the tale of two trials. Jesus is led to his trial, but so is Peter. But Jesus had taken the time in the Garden of Gethsemane to pray And he's empowered by the Spirit because of the time he took to prepare. But Peter, Peter didn't prepare with prayer. He prepared with sleep. He gave way to the flesh. And he's going to be caused to stumble, just as Jesus said that he would. And it's important for us to see and compare, because that's exactly what Mark is doing. He is introducing the trial of Jesus and he's introducing the trial of Peter so that we can learn something from the example that they set. It's the tale of two trials. One to follow, that would be Jesus. And one to take heed, that would be Peter. Jesus knew he was walking into his trial, but Peter Peter had no idea as he was warming himself by the fire that he was about to enter his trial. And let me tell you, church, we would be wise to follow the example of Jesus and be prepared for a trial, whether we know that we're in one, whether we know one is coming, or whether we have no idea, because Jesus made it very clear, we will go through trials in this life. Don't be like Peter. Peter, who pridefully thought, I got this. There's no way I'm going into a trial. I'll never deny you. Let me tell you something about pride. It comes from the wisest man in the world. Take a look. It's Proverbs chapter 16, verse 18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. You see, the moment that you think that any sin is not within your grasp, is probably the moment that you'll be picking yourself up off the floor because of your fall. Peter thought, I could never do it. I would never deny the Lord. But these trials, they were apparent on Peter and they were apparently on Jesus. And these trials, they were both held in the enemy's courtroom. For Jesus, his courtroom, he was being swarmed in the living room of the high priest. It was the Sanhedrin, the chief priests and the elders and the scribes. Now let me tell you who they are. 
They were a group of 71 men. It was the supreme court of the nation of Israel. And they would gather and decide all of the big cases. But the problem is, they're holding this case in the living room of the high priest. Can you imagine if the chief justice had a major decision in the United States of America and decided to hold court in his living room? No one in the United States would take that as serious or would put up with it. Yet, Jesus' trial, there in the living room, they were doing it. This was a kangaroo court. They've already decided what the verdict is. You remember, we studied this in Mark chapter 14, verse 1. Look carefully at the scripture. The Bible says in Mark chapter 14, verse 1, after two days, it was the Passover and the feast of unleavened bread. This trial was illegal. It wasn't even following their code of ethics. You weren't allowed to have a trial during a festival. It was like being in court at Christmas. You just didn't do it. And the Bible goes on to say, and the chief priests and the scribes, they sought how they might take him by trickery, take a look, and put him to death. They had already decided the verdict long before this trial was going to take place. Jesus was there in the living room. But Peter, Peter was being warmed by a fire. But both of them were the enemy's courtroom. Because I need to let you know something about the enemy. The enemy has no preference of either hearth or home. He will put you on trial at school, at work, at play, no matter where you are, because the enemy's goal is simply to weaken our witness and tarnish our testimony. He doesn't care where he does it, but he will put you on trial no matter where you are, because his desire is to weaken your witness, Christian. Yet God, God wants to use our trial to strengthen our resolve to accomplish his will. And that's what we're going to see in the life of Jesus. Take a look with me, Mark chapter 14. Now we'll pick it up in verse 55. Now the chief priests and all the council, that's the Sanhedrin, sought testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimonies didn't agree. Then some rose up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I'll destroy this temple made with hands, and within three days I'll build another made without hands. Not even then did their testimony agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, he's starting to get frustrated, Do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? Verse 61. But he kept silent and answered Nothing. South Bay, the trial had begun. And it is obvious that these witnesses were paid off just like Judas because it's the middle of the night. How would they have known to be there unless they were prepped, paid, and prepared? They had met with them. They had paid them. They had told them what to say. And here the Jews were breaking their own code of ethics by bribing the witnesses to put Jesus on trial. Let me tell you something. When you go on trial with the enemy, the enemy does not play by the rules in order to weaken our weakness. Witness. He will do whatever it takes. He will give whatever sucker punch necessarily to weaken the witness or to tarnish our testimony. But something's very obvious, though it's not written. Something is very obvious, and that thing that is obvious that God is working as those that were prepped couldn't even agree on their testimony. So let me tell you what happened. One by one in a Jewish court, the testimony would be given, and then that person would leave, and the next testimony would be given. The testimony, the people, the witnesses, were used as prosecutors against the person on trial, but they weren't allowed to be in the room together. So somebody would be outside and say, okay, here's your 30 pieces of silver. This is what you're supposed to say. They would go into the courtroom, and then all of a sudden, they couldn't remember what they were supposed to say. And now the high priest is getting frustrated. I can't find any two witnesses that agree so that I can make a charge stick. They're absolutely confused. What's going on here? 
Let me tell you something about confusion. Well, actually, I'm not going to tell you. I'm going to let the brother, half-brother of Jesus tell you. It's James chapter 3, verse 16. Look what the half-brother Jesus of Jesus says about confusion. It's James chapter 3, verse 16. Take a look at the screen. For where envy and self-seeking exist. Listen, merry couples. Where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing is there. We've got to be wary when there's confusion. We've got to be wary when there's misunderstanding. Because wherever there's confusion, the enemy is up to something. He's putting us on trial to tarnish our testimony. Be wary of confusion. And right there in the midst of this, finally, according to Matthew chapter 26, verse 60, there are two witnesses, and they've got a similar testimony. You see, their testimony, they say, well, we heard something. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and within three days, I'll build another made without hands. And they have a similar testimony. And the high priest hears what it is, and I help to help you understand what their testimony is saying. They're basically accusing Jesus of terrorism. Can you imagine? If someone in a courtroom said, I'm going to blow up the White House. That's what they're saying. They're saying that Jesus is going to destroy the temple, the most holy place in all of Israel. They're accusing Jesus of terrorism. And let me tell you something. Blowing up the White House or even saying that you will is a condemnable crime in the 21st century, just as it was in the 1st century. However, in the 1st century, you could be executed for doing it. That's what they're accusing Jesus of. But they're misquoting him. They're even twisting his words. Jesus did say something about the temple, but I want you to see from John chapter 2 what he actually said. Take a look. It's John chapter 2. It's going to be in verse 19. You can write it down in your notes. John chapter 2, verse 19. The Bible says, Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. Then the Jews said, not understanding, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? John adds, but he was speaking of the temple of his body. See, John saw something that he realized what Jesus was saying. And I believe Jesus said, I'm going to destroy this temple, and in three days, I'll raise it up again. You see, Jesus was speaking about his body. Because he knew all the way back in John chapter 2, at the beginning of his ministry, that he was going to die on the cross. And like I said last week, when Jesus was praying, let the cup pass, he wasn't praying to get out of the cross. He didn't want to be separated from his father. Jesus knew that he was going to the cross. He knew that he was going to the cross at the beginning of his ministry. But the enemy, the enemy always twists the word of God. Oh, I had a young lady walk up to me yesterday, she, a couple of weeks ago, sorry, and she told me that she was getting ready to date an unbeliever, and she had a word from the Lord. I go, you did? I go, what is that word? <laughs> well, he's got great biceps. And I go, well, that's not a word from the Lord. And she said, no, 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 I'm sorry, sorry, sorry. I've got a word from Matthew chapter 5. The Bible says, let your light shine among that man. And I said... Okay, that's not exactly what the Bible is trying to get across. No, 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 I'm going to let my light shine in front of him, and he's going to get saved, and we're going to get married. I can't wait. Let my light shine. Jesus spoke to me. What about don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers? Oh, Pastor Jack, Jesus spoke to me. Are you sure that was Jesus? Do you see how the enemy can twist the word? He's been doing it since the Garden of Eden. Do you remember when he walked up to Eve and said, Did God really say? 
All he wants to do is cause a little bit of confusion and twist the word just a little bit to make you tarnish your testimony. Because that's what he does. He brings confusion. He twists the word. Look, the enemy can't even agree with themselves. Their, their testimonies do not agree. In other words, what the Bible is saying is that no matter what they say, nothing stuck on Jesus because God would not allow any false accusation to fall at Jesus. They would just fall at his feet. The enemy's getting frustrated. His plan's not working. The high priest had thought about this trial all day long, probably all night long, probably for many weeks. But none of the accusations are sticking on Jesus. And, and Jesus, he's just standing there. He's not yielding to temptation. He's not getting frustrated. In fact, the Bible says in Mark chapter 14, verse 61, take a look again. Mark chapter 14, verse 61, the Bible says that he kept silent and answered nothing. Hey, church. Jesus made it very clear that we're going to go through trials. And I believe the Holy Spirit has given us this scripture because the Lord is teaching us through his life how we're to walk through our trials. You see, the high priest is getting frustrated that his plan is not working. And I don't know about you, but when the enemy puts me on trial, I want to frustrate him just like Jesus did. When he tries to put my trial on marriage, I want to frustrate him. When he tries to put my ministry on trial, I want to frustrate him. And I want to learn from Jesus exactly how he did it so that I can choose to be like him. And if you're taking note, I want you to write this first principle down. Jesus stuck to the word. He stuck to the word. In Isaiah chapter 53, verse 7, listen to God's direction for Jesus in Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed. He's in the midst of a trial. He was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. God the Father directed Jesus in his word, don't open your mouth. And the Bible says he was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth his mouth. Jesus knew Isaiah 53, and Jesus was applying Isaiah 53 to his life. He stuck to the word. He knew it, and he chose to live by it. He would not allow the trial to change his trajectory. Do you remember what he told Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane? When Peter took the sword and took off Malchus's ear, Jesus looked at Peter and said, Peter, this has happened so that Scripture will be fulfilled in my life. I don't care what I'm going through. I am purposed to stick to the Word of God so that when the enemy comes against me, the way I started my ministry with it is written is the way that I will end my ministry. I'm sticking to the Word of God. Listen, church. Stick to the word of God in the midst of your trial. Default the word of God in the midst of your trial. But number two, maybe you'll write it down. Jesus kept his character. Jesus kept his character. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, Jesus describes himself. Take a look if you would. Come to me, all you who are labor and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. I want you to learn from me. Watch me and learn me from me. For I'm gentle or humble. I'm lowly in heart. That means meek. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. There are two characters that Jesus describes about himself. I'm gentle, which means I'm humble. And I am lowly in heart, which means he is meek. And Jesus, he kept his character, he kept his cool despite the trial. He would not yield to temptation. Look what Paul says about his humility. It's Philippians chapter 2, verse 8. Paul is writing about Jesus, and he says this, Being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. 
God said, you're going to the cross, and Jesus said, I'm doing it. I'm humbling myself. I'm going to be obedient to what you're asking me to do. And in the midst of trial, Jesus kept his character, and he was humble. But Jesus was also meek. He was meek. Now, you know what meek is. His meekness is revealed. Do you remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, once again, when Peter took the ear off of Malchus, Jesus said something else to him. He said this, Peter, don't you know that I could call on 12 legions of angels and they would come and rescue me? Now, if I was Jesus, maybe not 12, but at least one. Let me tell you something. If I was at the high priest's living room and he was coming after me, I would have at least said, okay, Lord, this is enough. Bring one legion. I need some lightning on that guy. Let's do a little earthquake. Okay, and by the way, you can no longer speak. I mean, that would have been me. Thank God I'm not Jesus, okay? But Jesus is power under control. He had the access to bring down 12 legions of angels, and he chose not to. Let me tell you why. He kept his character. He's the standard bearer of power under control. Hey, parents, got a question for you. Have your kids ever brought you to this place? Like you've had it. They're driving you crazy. You can feel the blood just boiling from your feet, coming up steam is going to come out your ears. And all of a sudden you look at your kids and you say, I brought you in the world and today I'm taking you out. Let all the parents say, don't agree to that. Don't agree. Because sometimes in the midst of trial, we can lose our cool. But Jesus kept his character despite the trial. Thirdly, if you're taking note, Jesus chose to stand for God in the midst of his trial. Would you take a look at Mark chapter 14? Now I'm going to pick it up in verse 61, the latter portion of it. Again, the high priest asked him, saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Matthew lets us know that the high priest pulled out the high priest card and said, I demand you by oath. Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Let me tell you what Jesus is saying. Today you're judging me. Tomorrow I will be judging you. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, What further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him to be deserving of death. Then... Some began to spit on him, to blindfold him, to beat him, and to say to him, prophesy. And the officers struck him with the palms of their hand. I told you, if you're taking note, it's the third of Jesus. Jesus chose to stand for God in trial. See, the high priest had had it. He'd had it. And the high priest had a special little card that he could pull out anytime he wanted It was called the oath card. And if the high priest pulled out the oath card and said, I demand you by oath, tell us if you're the Christ. That demand was the point of this whole trial. With each witness, the high priest was just simply waiting to ask this premeditated question. Because according to the Jewish law, And knowing that Jesus would never break the law, he knew the testimony of Jesus, that he would never break the law, he demanded an answer by oath. Look at Leviticus, the Levitical law, Leviticus chapter 5, verse 1. If a person sins in hearing the utterance of an oath and is a witness, whether he has seen or known of the matter, if he does not tell it, he bears guilt. You see, 
the high priest knew that if he pulled out the oath card, it would force Jesus to answer. So he pulled it out. He didn't care if the answer was yes or no. The verdict was already determined. But I want to let you know something. What the enemy had planned for evil, God is about to use for good. Because Jesus was waiting for that question as well. And it was when he asked that question that he confidently confessed, I am. I am the Son of God. I am the Messiah. I am the Christ. You see, he knew he had to be condemned to pay the price of our sin and to fulfill the will of the Father. This answer would seal the deal and accomplish the will of God. While the high priest was simply waiting for the witness, Jesus was waiting for the, for the question so that he could make the confession. And as soon as he said, I am, like a shark frenzy, the onslaught of the trial began. They blindfolded him. They popped him in the face. They took their palms and they swung at him and hit him on the side of the face. They spit on him and they said, hey, who hey, Jesus, who just hit you? Who just popped you in the right? Who just got you in the chin? Who just got you in the left? As they mocked him and Jesus, what did he do? He stood in that living room because Jesus would stand for God in the midst of that trial. And let me tell you why, church. Because he says, learn from me. His choice to stand confident with the confession is meant to us, to encourage us to do the very same thing with our Christian confession at work, at school. No matter where we are in our world, Jesus in the midst of his trial is standing firm in his confession. I am. I am. Let me tell you why. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, it gives us insight as to where Jesus' mindset was. Hebrews chapter 12, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Look unto Jesus. Watch Jesus. Let's see what he does. He's the author and the finish of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. In other words, he didn't even regard when they were hitting him, when they blindfolded him, when they spit him, and when they were mocking him. He didn't even regard it. He despised all that shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And he's asking us to do the same. Are you willing to go through the trial of earth and be a witness in order to enjoy the joy of the presence of your Father in heaven. Jesus sets an example for us that in this world, he stood for God. But Mark is faithful. And what Mark does now is show us the difference between Jesus and Peter. Take a look. It's Mark chapter 14. We've seen the example of Jesus. Now let's pick it up in verse 66 to see the example of Peter or lack thereof. Now as Peter was below in the courtyard, verse 66, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And when she saw Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with Jesus of Nazareth. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you're saying. And he went out on the porch and take a look, and a rooster crowed. There's several things we need to learn from the life of Peter. And the first is this. To be forewarned is to be forearmed. I learned that phrase from my sixth grade English teacher, Mrs. Fishback. I'll never forget her. Because she would say to me, Chet... You need to sit down. To be forewarned is to be forearmed. And what she was saying is, I am giving you the word that will protect you from getting a demerit. I am choosing to give you direction that is actually helping you. And I'm giving you the direction beforehand and before you make a huge mistake. To be forewarned is to be forearmed. Can I remind you, church? 
Jesus told Peter, when the shepherd is struck, scatter. And when the soldiers came, Jesus said, look, you came for me. Let these go their way. And he was given direction to Peter. You need to get out of here. He was given direction to the disciples. You need to run. But Peter, Peter chose to follow. Do you remember last week we talked about 1 Corinthians 10, 13? And the Bible says, temptation is common to everybody, but God's faithful. He will provide a way of escape. He won't tempt you beyond what you're able, but he'll provide the way of escape. And you know what I found in my life? My personal devotions are oftentimes the greatest way of of escape. Let me explain. When I'm in the Word of God, God is forewarning me about my upcoming trial. There's never a question as to whether there will be a trial. We will go through trials. But when I'm in the Word of God, He is forewarning me to be forearmed. Jesus knew that Peter was not able to sit in the enemy's camp and survive. He knew it. So he's telling Peter, when they come for me, get out of here because I know you better than yourself. Listen, if I know that you can't handle this. This would be like an alcoholic starting bar ministry. If you struggle with liquor, don't start a bar ministry because I guarantee your drink of choice is going to get dropped right in the bar next to you and the temptation will be too much. Jesus knows us better than ourselves. So he says to Peter, listen, I know you can't handle it. You need to get out of here. To be forewarned is to be forearmed. Secondly, we got to learn something from Peter's life. Listen to the alarms. Now, I know we all hate alarms. So what I've done on my iPhone is I've chosen the, like, bird jungle theme. And it starts out small, like, and then it gets louder and louder and louder and louder. But every single morning it goes off, you know what I do? Throw my iPhone. We all hate alarms. But let me tell you something about alarms. They protect us from being late to work. And let me tell you something else about alarm. They tell us to get out of a building that's burning. Peter had made the decision to cuddle up next to the fire with the enemy. He wanted to blend in. He didn't want to be noticed. He was a closet Christian. He didn't want to stand out. But he wanted to be able to go back to the disciples and say, I proved Jesus wrong. I was with him. I stayed right next to him. But there he is, a little closet Christian, not letting anyone know that he was saved and he was a follower of Jesus. And this is going to cost him. And a girl. A girl walks up to him and accuses him publicly. Now, I'm thinking maybe this girl looked like Xena the warrior princess, and that's why he was so terrified. (laughs) But this is a little girl. And not only does he deny Jesus, he publicly says, I know nothing about Jesus. Take a look. Mark chapter 14, verse 68. And he went out on the porch and a rooster crowed. This happens all the time in our lives, doesn't it? We're about to do something we shouldn't do or we've done something we shouldn't have done. And the alarm of conviction goes off in our life to remind us, get out of there. The rooster crows in our life, and we've got to make a decision. Will we choose to ignore the alarm of the Holy Spirit, believing we got this, just like Peter? We'll never fall. We're good. I've got this. Or will we choose to listen to the alarm and respond and get out of there? Thirdly, we've got to learn something else about Peter. Would you take a look at Mark chapter 14, verse 69? And the servant girl saw him again and began to say to those who stood by, this is one of them, but he denied it again. 
A little later, those who stood by said to Peter again, surely you're one of them for you're a Galilean and your speech shows it. In other words, you got a Galilean accent. Then he began to curse and swear, I don't know this man of whom you speak. And a second time, the rooster crowed. Peter called to mind the word that Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And when he thought about it, he wept. Something else we need to learn from the life of Peter, recognize your weakness. Because I hope someone is saying, after the first rooster, I hope someone in this room is saying, Peter, why didn't you just leave when the rooster crowed the first time? You had one more rooster, bro. Why didn't you just get out of there? Do you remember when Joseph was in the room with Potiphar's wife? And Potiphar's wife ripped off the little towel, and there he is standing buck naked. What did he do? I think I can handle this. I'm going to stay right here, and we'll just go through the whole scene. He got out of there because he knew he was being tempted, and instead of dishonoring God, he ran away as she was holding on to his little skirt. But not Peter. The rooster crows, the alarm sounds, and Peter chooses to say, can I tell you something about temptation? Temptation doesn't get better. It gets worse, according to Scripture. Turn with me to James chapter 1. Keep your finger. We'll come back to Mark. But turn with me to James chapter 1. I ask you to keep your finger there. Now, verse 12. James chapter 1, verse 12. Take a look if you would. James chapter 1, verse 12. Blessed is the man who endures temptation, or blessed is the man that goes the way of Jesus. For when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. Remember, Adam tried this. Uh, It was the woman you gave me. God, it's your fault. (laughs) If you wouldn't have given me Eve, I would not have done this thing, okay? This is actually your fault, God. That's exactly what the Bible is saying. Don't blame God for your personal sin. But each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. Temptation always goes from bad to worse if you don't get out of there. Did you hear what Peter said? Rooster crowed. I deny him. And before the second rooster, he calls a curse upon himself. If I'm lying, let God kill me. That's what the Bible says a curse is. Temptation will always lead us down a dark path. Because you've got to remember something. The enemy desires to tarnish your testimony and weaken your witness. The enemy is only putting us on trial to weaken our resistance. Peter, he wasn't spiritually prepared. And when the enemy attacked, he attacked his weakest point, his pride. Peter never thought he would fall into this sin. And church, let me say to you, there is no sin that a human being can't reach out and grasp. Don't think for a moment that you could never go there. God knows you can. That's why we have to trust that he knows us better than we know ourselves. And when he speaks to us in our word, in his word, recognize your weakness, choose the path of humility. Don't tell God, I got this, when he knows you don't. Recognize your weakness. And the Bible says the rooster crowed in Mark chapter 14, but Mark leaves something out that's very important. Luke lets us know in Luke's gospel, chapter 22. Would you look at the screen? And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word of the Lord and how he had said to him, before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. And he wept. The Lord looked at him. Do you remember when you were talking in church and your mother looked at you? Do you remember that? Do you remember? Do you remember? 
Oh, you guys all had like the holy righteous mothers who were like, oh, please stop talking. God bless you. No, my mom, let me tell you, she's a Bahamian woman. When I was talking in church, I got the look. Sometimes I told you I've got the two fingers. And let me tell you, those two fingers in your thigh, you feel it for days. Feel it for days. Telling you. I don't know, the power in those two fingers on your thigh, you've got bruises, I'm telling you. That wasn't the look of Jesus. Do you remember in John chapter 13 when Jesus tells Peter, you're going to deny me? Not me, Lord. I'll give my life for you. No, you're actually going to deny me. Do you know what the very next verse is? It's John chapter 14, verse 1. Do not be troubled. The look that Jesus gave him was a look of love. It was a look of comfort. It wasn't anger and disdain. Jesus had already told him in Luke's gospel, listen, Satan's asked to sift you, but I'm praying for you, man. I know you're going to mess up. And when you return, when you repent... When we make it right, strengthen your brothers. Jesus knew that he was going to mess up. He didn't look at him like, "Ah, I told you, there's no way. He looked at him with love because he said, don't be troubled. You see, I wonder if the Lord is looking at you today and right now. You're in the midst of your trial And you may have even gone the way of Peter. And I wonder if the Lord is looking at you. The look of the Lord is the power of his conviction in your life. You'll know when he's looking. You'll sense it inside. Something within you is sounding an alarm. You're going the wrong way. You've got to turn. I wonder, how will you respond? Our ushers are going to come forward now as we remember the Lord in communion. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we come before you in Jesus' name so thankful for your word. Overwhelmed by the grace of God in our lives. And thankful for all that you've done for us. And we pray now as we remember you. Would you look at us? Jesus' name. Amen. I know in a room this size, there are many of you that are walking through trials, and you may have done it Peter's way. You may have messed up. You might have denied the Lord in his, in his character, and maybe you blew it. Maybe you lost your cool, right? You're with your kids or with your spouse, and You're in the midst of a trial and all of a sudden you say something or you've done something and now the Lord is looking at you. It's a look of love. And in communion, he wants you to remember him. Because there's something powerful about communion. I'll tell you what it is. The Bible says that his body was broken That's a trial. He was at a breaking point, but he kept his character. He was at a breaking point, but he stuck to the word of God. He was at a breaking point, but he stood for God. And Jesus wants you to know, I know you're in your trial, and I know that you feel broken, but I want you to know With this piece of bread, I understand. I know exactly where you're at. And I set an example for you. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, you can stand. Can you remember that? Some of you in the midst of trial, you feel as if life is flowing out of you. Jesus gets that. He understands what it feels as if to say, you don't want to go on. He says, I get you. I've been there. I know exactly what that feels like. 
I know that trial. But I stuck to the word. I stood for God. And by the power of His Spirit, He wants to remind you today, so can you. Maybe some of you, like Peter, you denied the Lord. You didn't stick to the Word. You didn't stand for God. No, instead, you messed up. That's the beauty of communion. If you remember, Mark's gospel is the gospel of the second chance. Peter gave this testimony to Mark to let the world know God can use someone that messes up like he's used me. Communion reminds us of the grace of God. Communion reminds us of his mercy. It reminds us of his love for us. And even if we've messed up, we can confess our sin because of his broken body and his blood that was shed. And on that night, the Lord took the bread. And he said, this is my body which is broken for you. And as long as you eat it, would you remember me? Let's remember the Lord. And then he took the cup. He said, this is the cup of the new covenant, my blood which is shed for you. I get it. I know what it feels like to be in a trial where you feel like your life is ebbing away from you. I get it. But this cup represents something powerful that one day you can be with me in heaven no matter what you go through on earth. This is the cup of the new covenant, my blood, which is shed for you. And as long as you drink it, I want you to remember me. Church, let's remember the Lord. Father, thank you so much for your grace. But now, church, I want to pray for you. If you just remain in your seats. If you're walking through a trial right now, it's overwhelming. You feel like your life is ebbing away. You feel like your body is broken. I want to pray for you. Would you just lift up your hand right where you're at? I see your hands. Just keep your hands up in active surrender. Father, I pray for every hand that's raised. I want to thank you, Jesus, that you know exactly where we're at. You understand. And I pray now that you would give them the power of your Holy Spirit to be able to stand for God in the midst of it. To stick to the word. Pray that you'd give them the power of your spirit to have the courage to press on. To God be the glory. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.